This week on Slashers, the boys are talking Videodrome, the cult classic by David Cronenberg with infinitely more stomach vaginas than his other works. Be sure to stay tuned until the end of the episode for a special song from Time Snake Sky Dad. First, it controls your mind, then it destroys your body. That sounds like a pro wrestler's name, right? <laughs> He's like talking about his his finishing move. I'm gonna put you in the video drum. First, it controls your mind, brother. <laughs> then it destroys your body. I feel like somehow, some way, Macho Man needs to be involved in that. Oh yeah, <laughs> snap it to a Slashers podcast, dude. Watching that shit earlier on TV. Just brought back so much memories about Val Venus. Oh. What? They Dude. had a porn star, like supposed porn star, with like naked, shaking his ass, and he just wear nothing but a towel, and people were just like eating that shit up. Let me get you started on this. So Val Venus. Also, this is Slash's podcast, the podcast, but movies more for those before. <laughs> my name is Jake. With you as always, my esteemed colleagues, co-hosts, and Hi guys. Uh, Sometimes it's about wrestling, though. There we go. Sean Morley is the guy who played Val Venus. Okay. He like lost his butt fucking mind because AEW has a trans woman as their woman's champion. He's like, you know, Big Valboski loves the ladies, but blah, 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 blah. And it's like, you are a scum sucking pig. Really? Yeah, it's not. It, oh, it's no. not cool. He's trying to do the whole like Joe Rogan bandwagon where it's like, oh, well, I'm just talking about the athleticism and the competition and the heritage of women's wrestlers. And I was like. This is not the same yeah, thing as Fallon Fox, bro. You can't even make that It's a sad way to backstep, right? Like, it was just backpedaling, I guess, is what you'd say. Yeah. I'm also like, oh, you're suddenly trying to be relevant by demeaning and dismerching. Does me. he still have his sweet slime ball hair? Uh, it's short now, from what I understand. Oh, okay. But, you know, I felt like giving him a Stephen Richards right to censor super kick to his little pecker. Dude, how fucking weird was that at the point? in time where they had these little promos of like hot dogs like extra long girthy hot little hot dogs choppy choppy pee pee did you ever yeah. see that one i was a big fan of takamishinoku and finaki so even though i was a wcw guy i love that and that's <laughs> one big i definitely man. did not miss and then there was the hoe train right there's a hoe train there was a you know val venus with his wieners and whatnot yeah, fun fact, in WWF No Mercy, the most expensive character you can buy in the game is half a million bucks. It's the hoe. It's one of Godfather's hoes. Oh, no. And you can change the costume <laughs> for each one of them. And so technically, you could have the Godfather with like five hoes, but he can only be escorted by you know one to the ring. Isn't that great? I feel like there's little subtleties to these old school video games oh, that yeah. you can never really get away with anymore. Well, it's great because I used to, well, I mean, I was like 11 at the time, so I used to make a female character and I'd make her have the taunt of Mr. Ass, Billy Gunn. And so <laughs> if you look, there's one where he moons, but it's pixelated. But I was like, oh, it's a woman's butt. <laughs> <laughs> That's, perfect. That's uh, perfect. So we're talking about dumb nostalgia because this movie is weird. And it makes me feel not good. Yeah. I mean, shit. Within the first 10 minutes, I almost felt too uncomfortable to continue. Yeah, man. It's it's <laughs> like, weird. I was surprised with how adamantly against everything's like abuse to women you are. And yeah. then you're just like, 
okay, we're watching it. This is happening. <laughs> I went into it pretty blind. I'm going to be honest with you. Like, I, all I knew was the legend and the myth of the movie being like, oh, well, it's pretty fucked up. And, you know, it was never presented to me. Oh, it's it's fucked up for sexual deviancy and stuff. And, and, and you know, I'm not to kink shame anybody. This goes to a level that I'm not necessarily comfortable with. But I described the movie as I was watching it to my wife. I described it like a Schindler's List. I was like, I did not enjoy the movie, <laughs> but I'm glad that I've seen it. Yeah. You know, where I was like, yep. mm. I can I can definitely tell you that the wife is probably much better not watching this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, for sure. It, it, I'm I'm glad she skipped out on this one. Now here's an interesting thought I had, and I, I wanted to run this by you. If this same exact movie was put out and it had the byline Stanley Kubrick, oh god. Do you think that it's legendary? Think I can of see that. all the imagery that you see in The Shining. Think of the unnerving nature of it. Think of even some of the odd sexual stuff, like you know people saying there's the implication of Jack being a child molester. There's the dog man blowing the dude. Think of those things. I mean, it would definitely have more traction as far as with the release. Cronenberg's yeah. always been a guy that's been behind the scenes. Yeah, for sure. So he almost seems like he's like an elitist in a way, I can see as that far for sure. as like. I guess that's a bad way of explaining it, but he just seemed like he's just above making the big blockbusters. Well, yeah, and I think that there's a lot to be said about just his general disposition. He doesn't present himself as like the pompous artist. He seems right, kind of like right. Maybe a little bit pompous in his own right, but not like the. He's not a Kubrick. Isn't type. it weird to kind of ex- describe it as like highbrow slash lowbrow? Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> that's what the movie is. James Woods was even talking about that he would multiple times throughout the shoot be like, did you really write this? Because you, know, you, you look at Cronenberg on set, and there's footage of him in Ferrari brand leather jackets with like comb over hair and glasses. And it's like, you wrote the scene where the guy, <laughs> really? Where the guy gets whipped bare ass on a snuff film? Okay. And what do you, what do you think this movie says about the people of Pittsburgh? Huh? <laughs> or Schittsburg. <laughs> so shall we get into some trivia for the movie? Not a whole lot for this one. No, there's not. It's it was kind of kind of bare. But I, at the same time, it almost just adds more to the mystique exactly. of the film. This is definitely a movie that at the time did have some notes about the production, some little mini documentaries that were made, but it was more about the makeup. And then it's only years later that people talk about like the subtleties of the story structure and the dynamic elements. So in terms of contemporaneous like citation, there's not a whole lot to draw. Right. I think even more so than anything was just as far as what I was looking at, the deleted scenes or maybe just the scenes that just got cut out altogether. Right. So I feel like there was like maybe four or five different scenes, one including their faces apparently getting melded together and killing a hooker. Yeah. There's another one. <laughs> There's another one of apparently a, a TV, a fully functioned TV being dropped into a bathtub, which I feel like, I mean, they could have done if they would have done like the whole reverse thing where you drop a TV into a bathtub, but then you play it in reverse. Or no, maybe not, because that's just essentially the TV rising up from the bathtub, unless that's what they were striving for. Funny enough, you mentioned it. You could actually make a waterproof TV, which is what they did in this movie when they had the sheep's guts in it. It's a fully functioning television, and it wasn't going to react to the gut, so it's all completely sealed. So technically, you could do kind of the same thing. Wow. Interesting. I wouldn't be in the bathtub with it. I'm not (laughs) chancing that at all, especially for a movie like Videodrome. But, you know, it's all right. So actually, one thing I thought was pretty funny, there's a book called Terror, 1980s Horror Movies, 
and the author, Juan Steve Hutchinson, actually referred to this as Cronenberg's best work. And I was like, nuh-uh. <laughs> Has he seen The Fly? <laughs> I should have looked at that when I was going through the book at 900 miles an hour researching. <laughs> That's one of the things. So many things. Like I read through a, a few books where it's like a footnote for Videodrome, but nothing like really great gripping analysis aside from analyzing Cronenberg as a director and writer. Not right. much about the film itself. I want to say Cronenberg came out with a film about a novel called The Naked Something or Another that was apparently unfilmable or something that is like there's no way you can ever turn this script into a film. And he apparently did it. And it's like atrocious. Did oh, you hear anything about that? No. No, that sounds awesome. Though. <laughs> He's almost like, hold my beer. Yeah, right. I'll show you what you can and can't do. Naked Lunch. Oh, there you go. Yeah, the legendary. Is that is it a pretty legendary film? Yeah, it is. Not that it's good, but it's legendary. There's a bunch of literature that refers to Videodrome almost as just a footnote or an example of how weird you can get in film writing and whatnot. There's actually a novelization. Did you know that? It was a released, Videodrome? Yeah, it was Jesus. released by Zebra Books in 83, and it's credited to a, quote, Jack Martin, even though it's actually written by Dennis Etchison. Huh. Not etch a sketch, etch a sin. And so that that's the bathtub sequence that you're talking about is right. in the novelization, but it's not in the movie. Oh, okay. Kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. All of this stuff that Cronenberg came out with, he it just you look at how he looks in real life, and again, you talk about like people looking at him in his like Ferrari outfit, and w- one does not match the other. Oh yeah, right. You're just like. Huh? It's very Wes Craven, right? <laughs> Wes Craven's like he wears sweaters and he's like sweet, and then he writes movies and you know stuff with like The Shocker and Freddy <laughs> Krueger, the child molester with a knifey hand. Is or how about this one, uh, Last House on the Left, the rape torture movie, right? Where the yeah. woman chops the dude's pee pee. I don't know. I've never. Seen I, it I've I never seen it. I, won't I mean, I feel like I saw the remake. They made a remake, right? Yeah, recently. And I want to say a guy's head gets thrown into a microwave. Oh, cool. Which I think is kind of neat. I could dig that. But yeah, it was pretty rough. There's a funny part that I forgot to mention to you. When you were talking about dropping the TV into the bathtub and playing it in reverse, I was wondering if that was a specific reference to something because in what I read about the novelization, there is a scene where the television rises up from the bathtub and it's like Max Renz being like Venus de Milo with the giant conch cell. Oh, no way. So I was, that's super happenstance. Ah, that that's cool. Yeah, I don't know. Awesome. If you, you, maybe you're subconscious. I mean, maybe maybe I read that and I just didn't think about it, but you, cool. You snuck it in your brain stem <laughs> into this recording studio. Are you ready I mean, to... I know all of this shit. What are you talking about? I'm an encyclopedic resource <laughs> for blah, 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 no, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm not. <laughs> Ain't nobody got time or storage space in day brains for this shit. Would you like to get into some statistics for this? Oh, yeah, man. So apparently the budget for this film, almost $6 million. Where did the budget go? Probably special on the effects, effects, yeah. All of, this, all of these special Latex effects. Latex ain't cheap. Yeah, that's true. And dental dams ain't cheap. That's one of the things they were talking about it being made out of. What was part of the dental dam? Like, what part? In the television forging or molding process. Oh, interesting. The actual plasticine that they used was not actually like a latex. You know what? I've always kind of been interested in how the budgeting goes into effect as far as how much things actually cost. 
Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Because so for somebody to say this costs six million dollars almost, right? And you're like, okay, well, a good portion of this goes into special effects. How much truly goes into special effects? So you're talking about the cost of labor, yep. you're talking about the cost of the material itself, and then everything in between. So So it's a lot of it's almost like subcontractor work where they would take bids from various different, you know, makeup studios. And basically the makeup studio would be personally responsible for administering, oh well, this is your overtime pay, this is this, and this is the budget that we have for the actual appliances right. and whatnot that they're doing. In this movie, these dudes worked crazy hard they created new types of special effects for yeah that's cool so i mean when you listen to them talk about like the crazy hours they were working i hope for their sake that these guys were independent contractors yeah apparently i mean this booked. with how this or when this film came out it was pretty groundbreaking right as far as the stuff they were doing yeah just it was completely under the radar nobody gave this film any knowledge that's one of the things this movie predates the fly and when you think about it, it's a crazy thing to give David Cronenberg the reins after a flop like this, but the underlying mastery speaks for itself. Yeah, like absolutely. This is a movie. Like I said, I don't necessarily enjoy it, but it is good. Right, it is right. well done. You know? So when it comes to looking at the budget, and then you look at the gross. So budget was five again, five point nine mil. They ended up grossing two point one. So not exactly making it. Uh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he's splitting even here in one of the press releases i saw it was an interview with james woods and he was talking about like the innovation and in film writing and everything he said i think it's going to be gangbusters oh boy you are wrong <laughs> sorry james so looking back the differences between the budget and the gross do all of these filmmakers initially go into this with like a bid when it comes to like the movie studios, do they say, hey, for instance, I have an idea of this is what I want to do with this film. I'm going to give you this bid as far as what I feel like it's going to cost. And then at the end, they're just like, ah, I don't know, it kind of got away from me. Or you know what I mean? Because it seems like a lot of these films that we end up covering, the differences between the budget and how much they actually make are sometimes very drastic. And I don't know if that's something that the studios kind of had an idea about and they just didn't really care or i mean you can imagine they always would really care right because at yeah. the end they want to make money that's one of the reasons why the concept of dailies exist is so that people can monitor like producers and whatnot can see the progress you've made each day see if you need to re-record so it's not a finished product but you can see at the end of the day okay we have enough to work with we can sculpt with we can edit with so sometimes you'll see okay well look at the dailies are really good we know we can do this or or let's scrap this. Exactly. They'll screen modernly they have people screening dailies to the public, just seeing one scene, giving feedback before they're even finished making the movie. Wow. That's what a lot of people were talking shit about the rise of Skywalker because they were doing such intensive, you know, surveys and, and screenings and trying to really it wasn't a movie made for the art of film, it was a movie made for an audience. I can understand the criticism there, but I can also understand that art is a commodity. Right. About, Everybody's got to make money. Right. You know. And like modernly, if you look at the budget, you're talking about $15,327,572. Even by modern standards, this is a relatively cheap film to make. So at the time, it might seem pretty drastic. You have to add in the marketing budget, but really you're not talking about much because you're talking about the 80s and you're talking about Canada. One of the interesting things, this movie, just like most of Cronenberg's works, was partly subsidized by the Canadian government. Oh, that's cool. So before he made Shivers, his first feature film, he actually had come to California because he'd already pitched the film in Canada and said, hey, can I get some money from the Film Commission? And they're like, nah, sorry about it. Basically, yeah. 
So he was already of the mentality he was going to have to move to California if he wanted to be a legitimate filmmaker. He goes back home, starting to get his life in order, thinking he's going to have to change it. And then he gets the funding for Shivers and makes the film and then makes most of his other films in Canada. It's a crazy concept that this guy almost couldn't do it. It's also crazy to think that you have the Canadian government subsidizing a movie of this kind of graphic nature. Yeah, no kidding. Well, at the same time, you're talking about a guy who grew up in Canada and had a lot of the influences of this film based off of him trying to almost pirate these different TV stations and him being like, uh, I'm not really sure what I'm going to see here. This but This is an awkward boner situation. <laughs> I think I see a tit. I don't know. Right? <laughs> so for those of you who don't know the legendary history of Cronenberg, he was born in 1943. He predates the home television. And so when he was a kid, Canadian TV stations would end. You know, they would sign off for the night. But if you stayed up late, you put it at just the right angle at that uh, antenna. You move around that antenna, right? Gets- Stand on one leg and... He'd get signals from Buffalo, Detroit, and he wouldn't know what he was seeing or if he was allowed to see it. He talked about it being and very formative. And who's to say? I mean, maybe there was some crazy underground smut shit going around on, at that time. It was the Who Wild knows? West. Dude, Who knows? I remember growing up watch, with the internet. The first pornography I ever saw on the internet was a woman. She was naked and she was had a snake all over her. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry, what? Exactly. <laughs> I didn't seek it out. It was like sent to me. It was sent in a, uh, what do you call it? It was a WWF AIM chat room. Oh, boy. And yeah, I think it had something to do with like Jake the Snake Roberts. There's like, a lot of bad stuff that happens in AIM chat rooms. Yeah. Well, it used to. It's <laughs> dead now. Thank Jeebus. But my point being, it was like, uh, that was unregulated. I was, I think, maybe nine years old when I saw that. Yeah. So in an unregulated situation like that, there's no question that he saw something he was not supposed to see. To the degree, probably not. He's probably not watching actual snuff films. But yeah, exactly. Dude, I remember watching all sorts of like just crazy things. Like for those of you who don't know, Wayne's World is based on public access yeah, television, totally, where people can just totally. go to their local station and pay them money and say whatever the fuck they want at late night. That's yeah, what man. that's a parody. I feel of. like CCTV. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. And you know, you think about the film and where it went with kind of almost attacking mm-hmm. the CCTV, right? Or at least... He's attacking the distributor of smut, not the censorship thereof, which is a weird thing. Yeah, the exactly. The whole movie, I'm like, where's Big Brother? What's going to happen? <laughs> and then it's all about capitalism, really. It was a very interesting take. because Yeah, capitalistic propaganda right? and political you know, rivals and this and that. It's funny how they kind of sprinkled little things in there here and there. And you're like, where did that word belong in any of this movie whatsoever right and okay well the commoditization of tumors that create hallucinations i okay (laughs) neat (laughs) by a company that also makes eyeglasses right right and their target audience are homeless people naturally maybe not target but they're definitely the, the the test subjects so, with opening weekend came out February 4th, 1983. There wasn't much competition for it. I was doing a little searching here and there. I feel like the closest thing to it was in March, and I want to say it was Jaws 3D. But other than that, with opening weekend, I think February 5th was Blue Thunder. Never heard of it, but it was about an Officer Frank Murphy, an experienced LAPD helicopter pilot, and he's given command of an advanced new Blue Thunder chopper. Doesn't that sound sweet? 
But it sounds he, pretty legit. <laughs> but he begins to wonder why the LAPD would need a helicopter so powerful and why it is such a secret. Bum, bum, bum. I don't care. It sounds, eh. I mean, it's probably just digs at like LAPD because once upon a time, people were edgy and they're like, eh, fuck the police, man. It also came out the same day as The Entity, which was based on Frank D. Felito's work of the same name. What's that about? It's about a single mother in Los Angeles who is raped and tormented by an invisible assailant, much like what it appears the new Invisible Man remake is going yeah, to be. Yeah, that's right. That's Jesus. right. That lady, okay, I don't know what her name is. The actress who's in the Handmaid's Handmaid Tale, who's in this movie. Can she just do a movie where she just drinks a latte and nothing bad happens to her? Because fuck, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah, no kidding. Ugh. Some like post-apocalyptic everything. She's like, sign me up. Sounds good. Her life just seems to suck <laughs> on screen. It's like, please, just do something nice. Take a bubble bath yeah, where the, there's the, no villain. What was the one with Kevin... Baconator as the Invisible Man. What was that one? Hollow called? Man. Hollow Man. You get to see a redhead's titty being manipulated <laughs> by a pale. Dude, that's hand. a great movie, man. I feel like we should. No, I, I won't say it's great, but it is a movie that's like very integral in the formation of me as an adult. <laughs> I feel like there's also a rape scene. Well, I mean, it's a molestation scene. Oh, yeah, it well, gets close okay. to a rape scene. <laughs> to get technical. And so one of the one of the fun ones as well was Monty Python's Meaning of Life came out the next month. So oh, okay, not a but like you said, not a whole lot of yeah. Really there great wasn't stuff. a lot of competition. So. Flash Dance the same year. <laughs> oh, uh, this little film, Return of the Jedi, Psycho Two, War Games, but all that stuff comes Didn't out. Didn't Cronenberg get asked to work on Star Wars? Yep, and he was like, Nah, dog, I'm straight. <laughs> but to give you like a view of the world at the time. This is also the same year that Superman 3 came out. So, yeah, things are weird. <laughs> At the end, it didn't really matter because he is a successful director in his own rights. Yeah. Right? So it's like he didn't need to almost just jump on board. One movie that did come out in that same year, very far after, but I really want to plug, Fire and Ice. It's an animated film. It's pretty dope. It's by Ralph Bakshi, who did Wizards and a few other things. It's legit. It uses, I think, what is it called? Rotoscope? Yeah, rotoscope, where you like take live action and then you just draw it on it. So you're like basically tracing so it looks like a cartoon. Huh. Technically, it could fit our slashes criteria where somebody <laughs> is slashing using a sword. If you guys want to hear us talk about it, let Please, us know. Let us know. I will watch that movie <laughs> twice in a day, maybe three times. Jake would ask you, S your D. Yeah, probably. Or your V. Or your B. Yeah, well, let's just start with the B and then work our way to the front genitalia. <laughs> Movie's 89 minutes. That's perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. Do I need to see it again? Probably yeah. not. <laughs> but it is perfect runtime. I kind of wish that the music was a little bit louder. Because remember, I went into it and I was thinking to myself after the first couple of scenes, I was like, imagine if Stanley Kubrick did this film. I think people would literally be up on it. They'd be writing this film's dick right. so hard it would chafe. <laughs> you know? Because yeah. Because people like, let's face it. The Shining is not without its flaws. And I think this movie is very similar. But I think that if they had that like wall of sound kind of bah, like the bah, beginning bah, of The Shining. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I can see that. Like Midsummer. Yeah, right? for sure. Okay. It totally makes sense. Almost like this like overwhelming kind of inescapable feeling like that in your chest, you know? Well, yeah. It just basically makes you focus in on yeah. what's going on on the screen. And then you're just like, holy fuck. Okay. 
I am totally tuned in. Yeah, kind of like leaning into that borderline, like that pseudo psychedelic experience. Yeah, there you go. I could see that. Absolutely. If you had this movie done by Panos, Cosmatos, Cosmatos, the Greek Canadian filmmaker. So I guess maybe it's something in the water in Canada because he had Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy. Mandy is a fucked up movie. So this is the thing. This movie's like, I would like to see this movie once again from two other directors. Our our cosmonaut friend who did Mandy and Paul Verhoeven. Paul Verhoeven, RoboCop, Starship Troopers. Okay. Because I think that this movie could either be the psychedelic weird experience that the cosmonaut could do, or it could be the tongue-in-cheek referential commentary on mass media where you get like your comedic commercials. Right. Like everything that Paul Verhoeven does, and I think it'd be great. Cronenberg is in this weird middle ground where it's a little bit in and without. And when he was talking about the movie, he would he said that uh, it would be, quote, totally misleading to say that it's a criticism of television. But it is a criticism of television, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, I get what his intent is, but the delivery is still critical. So it's you, you understand what I'm saying? Right. It's kind of weird to analyze because it's kind of weird where it exists, even to peg it down. Agreed. <laughs> That's probably the best course of action, because if you disagree with me, I'm just going to repeat the same stuff really loud. Yeah, I mean, okay, look at look at the runtime. 89 minutes. Okay, let's go back and not dissect the film, but just kind of glance over it as a whole. Yeah. You look at everything that happens between him slowly descending into madness. Yeah. There's never a, a, a moment where it just basically goes into like a lull. He just goes from point A to point B and point C, and it just gets escalated like further and further. And there, there's no downtime of like, okay, I don't need to explain why or how he gets away with shooting all of his. Um, yeah, because you know he's in mean? a movie like, about that. Yeah, exactly. It, it's 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 all about the effects, and I don't need to go into like this crazy storyline. I don't know. Yeah, Does that- I could totally see what you're talking about. Like, I remember the movie Arlington Road. If I'm not mistaken, it's Tim Robbins or. Jeff Bridges, I think both of them are in it, where basically the plot twist at the end is that they've tricked this guy into going to some place to stop what he thinks is going to be like the Oklahoma City bombing too, but they've put the bomb in his car and the movie ends there. This is not a movie about how you get a guy to kill his coworkers. This is a movie about you know the overarching infiltration of his brain, and it just so happens that's one of the plot points, but that's not what the movie is. So we're not going to waste a bunch of narrative space about it, which I right. appreciate. Right, like you said, the fact that he just escapes the building. Okay, you're like okay, moving on. That's not what the movie's about. I'm okay next with that. scene. Exactly. Next scene. <laughs> Rapido, and they right. do a really good job of keeping it consistent, scene to scene, and also it's part of the disorienting nature of it. I mean, if this really fits the March Madness month that we're going in because. His crazy element. You don't know what in the narrative is really happening. Yeah. You have people reaching into his tummy pussy multiple <laughs> times, right? Did that happen or didn't that happen? I don't know. And I think the fact that I don't know makes this an effective movie. Like it's it's unnerving, which makes it effective. What's so crazy is the subtlety of him in the initial delusional state of when he strikes his uh, assistant. Mm-hmm. And you're just like, I'm sorry. Did I just see that? And then she's like, "What? what? Did you just say you hit me?" He's like, "Um, uh, nothing, nothing." And you're like, "Oh, okay. I feel so much better that that is technically yeah. a hallucination, right? Because otherwise, I would be feeling really uncomfortable right now." Same. And isn't that weird? How it almost seems like they can go through these acts of violence, but then after the fact, say, 
that's a hallucination. Yep. None of that happened. And then you're just like, huh, okay, so it's fine. Which still makes <laughs> James Woods a sympathetic character. Because think about it, in The Fly, they had a scene where they deleted it where the baboon had crossed with a cat and Poor beat it to death, right? And so they said that he wasn't sympathetic. Because he's not actually hurting those people, it's not bad, right? Because he's not actually hitting a woman, you're not thinking of him as an abuser. But in his mind, he is, which kind of goes to our movie next week, American Psycho. Yeah. Which, dude, I'm reading the novel right now. <laughs> My brain can't take it. Stop listing expensive shit and making me feel poor. <laughs> but one thing I thought was really interesting about Cronenberg's style is he was talking about in Cronenberg on Cronenberg, the idea that there wasn't really film schools in Canada at the time that he was coming up. Basically, if it was any kind of film school, there was one in Toronto, which was really teaching you about the mechanics of like camera work and stuff like that, but not the artistry of filmmaking because it was still a relatively new concept. So he was doing student films and teaching himself how to sync audio with film and stuff. And it, it's kind of a really interesting story to think that this guy could have done anything. I mean, he talked about having an obsession with entomology, with uh, cellular biology, with a few different career paths. Oh, that's and he cool. He just did this because... You know, it's like that riddle, like just trying to figure it out, which I think So is awesome. what was his first film that he had or like the first feature length? First feature film is Shivers. Shivers. But he had done a few Have you seen Shivers? I uh, I think I did. I was gonna say, I wonder if there's like a dis like a distinction between his very first kind of feature length and then as he progresses in his filmmaking career, can you see like the differences? Because obviously the first film he is basically self-taught. And so you should yeah. be able to see some like, well, he oh up. my God, okay, yeah. I can clearly see like, for instance, when we go back to our baby little episode on Event Horizon, where you're just like, oh. <laughs> yeah, so when he showed up on the set to do Shivers, he didn't know what the people were supposed to do. Oh, like, wow. He didn't know what an assistant director was. He didn't know. <laughs> so he was like doing things on his own that really weren't supposed to be. Looking at the That's film, I think I saw it in like 98 on wow. cable. I mean, like, it's been a minute, so I'd be happy to revisit it. And it's a it. body horror as well, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Which, I mean, that's where the movie like um, Slither is kind of... Oh, you know what? Way. Actually, I think I recall reading something about... Did he do work on The Brood? Yes, he did. Yeah, no, this okay. was his movie. That was it. That was his movie, yeah. right? And I want to say I read somewhere that the main female character in the movie who is the mother of the brood ends up getting like brutally murdered and it coincides with his ex-wife. Whoa. And it's basically like, okay, well our child is considered the brood and you know, Jesus. Yeah. It's like, it's crazy how he basically wrote her into the film. I'm like, huh, huh. something therapeutic about All that. Right. <laughs> also a little creepy, but therapeutic, no doubt. This isn't about you, but I mean, it's kind of about you. Yeah. <laughs> You're so vain. You probably think this film about killing an alien thing's about you. <laughs> That's how the lyrics go to that song, I think right? so. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. One thing I got to love about our boy, Cronenberg. This is something that I found last week, but I didn't crowbar it into the episode. He was talking about the idea of animal abuse in film, and he was talking about how it's, quote, offensive and a, quote, cheap way of getting a reaction. And it's interesting because he does have animal you know, death in the fly, but the way that it's done is in, it's an accident. It's essential. And it's, it's like a sterile kill yeah. almost, right? There's no, 
showing of dissection or mutilation or, or anything malice. like yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's an accident. It's a, it's a whoops. It's, well, yeah, and you're testing a theory. It's a scientific theory. Exactly. So this is just what happens after my, I guess you would call it a hypothesis. I have a hypothesis about this. I'm going to test this, and then this is the result. Yeah, and in this movie, there's no, you know, animals dying or any kind of abuse you know the people who except died. for like the sheep or the goat goat guts goat guts <laughs> well they actually we'll get into that it's pretty funny how that came to be and the consequences the stinky consequences Ew, thereof. gross yeah and so in his writing it was interesting he talked about the formation of his opinion on cinema like they used to go to the cinema and they'd watch two feature length cartoons and then there'd be a newsreel in between that was basically what his childhood was he remembered that finding bambi and dumbo and i quote traumatizing and he said he had to sleep with the lights on after blue lagoon which are those movies traumatizing in their own right not necessarily by modern standards but you have to think this is the only media he's consuming he's thinking about having characters ripped from their mothers and yeah and that's so interesting think about as a kid he's not really getting okay this is visually pleasing because you look at a lot of you watch kids watch shows or watch movies and you look at them enjoying the film and they're not necessarily picking up what the underlying story is about bright colors, they're, just, yeah. they're just bright colors cool Dumbo with big ears mm-hmm. and they're like oh my god this is amazing but in reality this is this really dark film and he kind of caught on to all of that yeah and what's interesting though is that like when you look at the pre- presentation of this film it's not his generation which i think is very interesting he's clearly talking from the perspective of another generation and i think you know this movie works really well in the internet age because yeah. basically you just replace cable TV with the internet. It's the same fucking thing. It's the same yep. Wild West. It's the same fetishism. It's the same you Yeah, know, I mean, think about it. People are literally glued to their phones and they're constantly talking on their phones. They don't even need to have their phone up to their head. They just have this little Bluetooth connected to their ear and you're constantly on your phone. So in a way, he was just predicting in a fucked up way how society is going to be. Right. When he started writing shivers he didn't think that he was going to be a filmmaker he thought he was actually going to be an author his dad was a journalist so he talked about his dad's typewriter being like the backdrop to his life and one thing i thought was really interesting james wood said this multiple times i think cronenberg and other things i had read kind of downplayed it but woods was saying how he always wrote from a place of his nightmares and he would only write at night because he specifically was finding things that haunted and chilled him which is kind of what wes craven did as well Craven, having never seen horror until he was an adult, had a very odd perspective on it. And his writing reflected the things that he was afraid of. And that, you know, it's this kind of odd man out yeah. style of writing. And I think it works for both of them. This yeah, that's, that is interesting. I mean, think about it. As a kid watching horror, you immediately see something. You see the blood and guts. And that's something that just kind of distinctly sticks with you. Whereas if you were to kind of take yourself away from that and then delve back into it as an adult, you almost just have a fresh pair of eyes that looks at more than just what's, you know, right in front of you. And that's almost like with, with, with Wes Craven, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that what's really interesting, you know, you've heard me say this a bunch of times when talking about advertising, when talking about story structure, when talking about music videos, it's just dicks and pussies. Right. And that's clearly it's meant to be salacious and kind of get, it's almost antagonistic in its simplicity. But I mean, basically what are we talking about here? 
Right. Like what's actually happening. And I think that it can take somebody who is looking at something from an, a removed perspective to say, oh, you know, all of these characters are just X. All of this narrative structure is just Y. And to be able to take it and swap these things in and out, I think it's very yeah, interesting. That is interesting. I really like Cronenberg's films, not be, like I said, not because they're enjoyable to watch necessarily, but because they leave me asking questions or thinking about things in a very you know, entertaining way. It, the, uh, the intellectual residue, if you will. <laughs> One last fun bit of trivia. This film started filming without a finished script. Because oh of the subsidies they received from the Canadian government, they had to be used before the end of the year. They started filming in October. And after Christmas, you have to remember there's Boxing Day. So they had no real time to shoot after Christmas. That's so crazy. They, get there. they did get to do some reshoots and some additional footage the next year. But that was another subsidy that they got. Wow. Crazy, right? Yeah, that's interesting. But it also kind of fits in the way that the movie uh, like unravels. is It's this weird stream of consciousness where, again, you don't know what's real and what's not. What I think is really crazy is how, you know, with me covering Hammer films and with us talking about Cronenberg and getting subsidized with the Canadian government, Mm -hmm. it seems so strange that the United States wouldn't also have some sort of like subsidized thing. It's everything's so corporate in the United States, which is fucking crazy. Like all majority of the Hammer films were in some sort of way recognized by the you know, the English government. Yep. And then at, you know, at the end they ended up getting like this giant award for contributing to all of like, you know, every, everybody that basically worked on all of the films, you know, it's a, it's a way for you to provide income for the people who provide revenue for the United Kingdom yep. and everything in between. So it's, it's millions kind of, of pounds a year, it's yeah. really, it's really neat to see other countries do. It. And it's also very sad that we don't. And what's really interesting is so often arts, literature, cinema, when those things are put in a museum or whatever, they're donated as a tax incentive. So it's not that the country is spending. They're just giving somebody a break on taxes. So (laughs) it's so fucked. It's just a weird perspective is basically they require us to have some charitable nature, which is also self-serving rather than having the taxable nature and then doing the money. I get taxed 17 fucking times. You give me a dollar. Right. right. Let's say I do work for you. You have to pay tax to pay my payroll tax. Then I have to pay tax on my income tax. Then I spend it and I have to pay tax there. And if I have certain things that I'm buying, like cigarettes or alcohol or whatever, I have to pay a tax there. So what is that dollar? It's 20 cents. So like it's a fucking fiction that we're not. But obviously, that's a discussion for another day. Yeah, I mean, I feel like maybe we're talking a little bit too close to tax day i mean it's I'm a little pissed off about little it. Rev- now that i've made there. business partner i'm like what the fuck where'd my money go big bank boom big bank boom. Gone. you know who might have something to say about producing and money would be pierre david and victor soul nicky who yep. worked basically with cronenberg i mean you had scanners and platoon brood scanners videodrome yeah some fun stuff Yep. And then you have uh, music by Howard Shore, did The Fly, Big, The Silence of the Lambs, Seven, The Cell. The Cell is great. I don't know a lot of people. I fucking to... love The Cell. I thought it was great. Dude, J-Lo, man, yeah. she's got it going on, man. The, the cross-section scene with the horse? It's a little weird. That's crazy. <laughs> That's probably why I'm vegan, I'll tell you that. I vividly it's a, remember that It's scene. a little weird, absolutely. I mean, Gomer Pyle, dude. Yeah. Fucking handling it. Love it. 
Yeah. You got, uh, apparently, so Howard Short, he killed it, right? Later yes. on in life, he's like, oh, this was this Lord of the Rings stuff. Let me just hop on board and see what this is all about. Which you have to love <laughs> Peter Jackson, this cult horror guy, somehow lands his way into the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And he's like, oh, you do weird horror shit too? Come on in, brother. The water's fine. I think fine. they work together on stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or did they not? Maybe they it's just inspired. King Kong and stuff as well, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Makeup by. Who's this guy? What's his, what's his name? Uh hmm. Kind of a, a lesser known. I feel like uh, there's some skateboard company named after him, Baker. Uh, Did you not know? It's not, uh, but Rick Baker. Sorry. Oh, guys. yeah. No, I, <laughs> I know who Rick Baker is. I know nothing about skateboarding. Oh, really? Yeah, Baker Skateboards. It's I know about Tony Zero. Yeah. No, nothing. I know Zero because Billy Corgan bought that brand because he loves the shirt. And then they had the song Zero from Smashing Pumpkins. See Jim and Chad. <laughs> Jim was like, I had no idea that Smashing Pumpkins were one of your favorite bands. I was like, bitch, I watch NWA every week because Billy Corgan owns it. <laughs> yeah. Can't go wrong with Smashing Pumpkins. You cannot. Even the bad stuff is good. What was that? Something Infinite Sadness? Sorry. Yeah. What was Mountain that? Calling the Infinite Sadness. Yeah, it's such a great album. All of their albums are good. <laughs> Do not limit them. I will fight you to the death this day. Very good. How about Rick Baker? Uh, he's kind of the best. So Homeboy starts doing makeups at like age 10 and then starts making masks at age 13. If you want a really good podcast, after you finish ours, of course, because it's the best, no big deal. He did a sit-down interview with Joe Rogan, which was pretty great. Oh, nice. Yeah. Joe is uh, is knowledgeable enough to be able to ask good questions, but layman enough to where he's getting Baker to explain things so it's completely accessible yeah. to anybody. You don't have to be the weird guys who host a horror movie in a garage to appreciate that stuff. That dude's nuts. It kind of makes you wonder where Joe got that werewolf from in his studio. Well, it's based on an American, American World werewolf in London. London. Yeah. Okay. So that totally makes sense. Yeah, that's no a sweet to Baker. fucking, that's a sweet werewolf though. Yeah. And so, I mean, we've talked about Baker a bunch of times on this show because his work is prolific. He won the first ever Academy Award when he did an American World from London, which, I mean, he basically created the genre. And what's weird AF, the first feature film he works on after an American Werewolf, this one. <laughs> it's weird, right? Yeah. I looked yeah. it up and I was like, no, that can't be right. And then I was watching a documentary and he's like, oh, yeah. So basically, the next thing I did after an American Werewolf was this. And I was like, the you stomach know, movie? It almost seems like he just gathered all of these really great behind the scenes people and that he's like, hey, you guys have some really great projects going on, but how about some extra credit? <laughs> you know what I mean? This is like something that's off to the side. It's like, hey, you want to do a little side project? I mean, I can't guarantee you there's going to be any success whatsoever, but eh. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think this is one where he just like, all right, this sounds interesting. Because basically it seems that it was sold to him based on the imagery and less about the narrative structure and really what does he care about the narrative. He said that he was, quote, incredibly impressed by the initial draft of the script. But you have to think about the way he's looking at it and everything. And he called Cronenberg a, quote, interesting man uh, who is unlike his work. So again, these people. But also you look at Baker. He's super unassuming. Yeah. He's this polite dude. And he's making weird sex organ things. <laughs> there was an original scene in the film where it's Woods and Blondie and they have sex organ hand appendages that are like fucking hands with like a weird rock, paper, scissor what? game. So he has all these cocks and pussies and stuff laid out on the table to start strapping these people's hands. And then Cronenberg comes in and he's like, yeah, no, 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 it's just, we're probably not going to do that. <laughs> How fucking mad would you be if you made cock fingers and they're told no? 
Uh-uh. I'm sure he found other ways to use cock fingers. Uh, I'll never tell. <laughs> and so it's it's an interesting thing because Cronenberg talked about all of the infusion that you get in this film being a representation of the extension of how technology is to humans. Cronenberg gave the example of the phone is an extension of both the ear and the mouth. The gun is an extension of the fist. I don't know about you, but I thought the gun reminded me of a dick. Beep, beep. But I also... Mean, what is more phallic than a gun? Literally, like this smooth, round, pointed—not mm. round, but it has a head at the end of it. Yeah, exactly. And then it it, it shoots. Split him. It should have shot and then had white smoke come out of it. Oh, it would have yeah. been really great. But it totally looked like a dick. I mean, maybe that was just me. That's not unintentional. That's the point. It's like this weird sexualization of these things. I think it's an interesting way. I don't know. It's it's very odd and it makes you uncomfortable, but that's the point. The fact that it makes you uncomfortable makes it successful because if it makes you uncomfortable, that's art. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> it's, it's making you uncomfortable, but it's not going to the two things that always drive me crazy. There's no animal abuse. There's no rape outright. Mm-hmm. There's clearly sexual abuse, but it's not the penetration of rape. And so I think that's one of the things that Cronenberg was talking about is what he thinks is cheap and offensive. Right. This right. movie makes you, I mean, if it doesn't make you uncomfortable, you have a stronger stomach than me because I'm like, oh God, dick Yeah, hands. but at the same time, even though there is like sexual abuse within the film, it's never implied that it is forced. It's always almost seems, it seems like they're, they're always very consensual. Like, oh, these people signed up to be on this video drum show, Right. That's how at least the storyline goes until they find out, oh, no, these people get murdered. But I'm sure the people going into going on to the Videodrome don't necessarily sign up thinking, oh, you're going to murder me? Okay, sounds great. Sign me up. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. They're like, okay, cool. I'm into this BDSM shit. So why not? You want to tie me up and beat me? All right, let's do it. And it's a very interesting point especially for a character like we'll get into it when Blondie's talking about her like first major acting role she thought it was gonna be something comedic and then she does this movie oh boy right (laughs) it's weird but it's also to an extreme and I think that she does a very effective job in it and being somewhat unnerved she was in Blondie before this she was Blondie the musician so yeah Yeah. that's what I I mean in that is she was the band was made and formed and she was a, a successful act Correct. Before this film. She actually thought she was going to be a an actress because there weren't rock groups like this that existed at the time that she was a child. And she talked about that very openly. She would have been an actress, but then she was able to kind of create her own you know, genre of music and style. And I think that's pretty fucking badass. Yeah, I wouldn't exactly call this a dipping a toe into the water to see how the acting chops do. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty diving in head first. So one of Baker's assistants was Frank Career. He did the physical effects. He was actually the physical effects supervisor. And he said, quote, it certainly took me by surprise. It was like nothing I'd ever read before. And then their other homie, Bill Sturgeon, who was working as an assistant, said, quote, it was literally the best script I've ever read because it was like a novel. It was like having a nightmare and you just couldn't put your foot on any reality because it would change in the next couple of pages. And I think it's great that these guys who are doing the visual effects are so reverent to the work itself. Yeah. Frank was actually really interesting. And he was talking about how Cronenberg, when he was presenting ideas to the special effects guys, did it in a very amicable way where he would go to them and he wasn't demanding. He was like, you need to do this. He's like, this is my vision. How can you help me? That's cool. I I feel like that's how you almost should always do it, right? Because it's a collaborative process. Exactly. And that comes from a dude who used to do like the bitch work of syncing audio. 
You know, when you're the guy who's mopped buckets of shit, you know what that's like. You know what it's like to have the thankless job. So he knows not to bark at you and he's going to work with you. I think that's a really clever thing that you get out of being in the quote unquote trenches. Now, the Frankie boy here creates one of the coolest fucking things I've ever seen. So, you know, the TV, right? right. It bulges, it pulsates, it sucks in, it does all this it stuff. It like breathes. So he created, originally they had a bunch of silicone tubing. And these motherfuckers were breathing in, blowing out, and creating the pulsing effects that way. This dude goes to like a Sam Ash. He says, hey, you got any old synthesizers? Get some bogus-ass keyboard, uses it, and creates a series of valves and mechanisms to where he's able to actually control the TV what? with a keyboard. So he's and almost they hired like, a keyboardist like, to do it, too. He's like puppeteering the TV right? with a keyboard. Yes. That's fucking cool. Insane. Right? When you think it was a like a group of five guys sucking and blowing on straws, and then dude comes in with his keyboard. How much was that guy getting paid? Double it. Not enough. <laughs> he talked about he specifically talked about staying after everybody left a few nights to try and get the you know the tweaks down. Because the overarching mechanism itself worked, but then having to tweak it and Isn't that so cool how you after you see a movie like that, you don't really understand or grasp how much goes into the effects until oh, you actually do the research. And you're just like, people just pour every ounce of effort into what they do, like as far as their craft. And it's, it's really, it's, it's great to see. Without question, my favorite reality TV show is Face Off, the sci-fi show. It's awesome. People have made fun of it because the narrative structure is very similar and every season has one where somebody's making their mold and it won't open, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but that's also reality TV, yeah. quote unquote. I but mean, everything has a script. Insane. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely unfathomable that you could you know, see that and not appreciate that on any level. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But whatever. And then Bill Sturgeon, also a cool dude. He was talking about Rick Baker being like a second dad to him. Because basically he kind of skated by, you know, he was a guy who was working as kind of just a, you know, a helper. Yeah. And so he gets to Baker and he's expecting he's to be able to do the same thing. He's like, uh, is this good enough? And Rick would be like, uh, nope, you're <laughs> going to do it again. And that accountability when he was so young really was like a formative experience for That's him. That's cool. Rest of his career. Baker's average age of his staff, 23 years old. I mean, that tells you these are like, this is the young cutting edge guys. In the yeah, industry, the yeah, times. I mean, it's the guys that want to be there, and the guys that aren't afraid to maybe go out on a limb and try something. They might get shot down, but at the same time, they're not going to shy away and be like defeated. Well, it's not Baker's whole life was this movie. You know, his wife worked on the film with him. They didn't have kids at the time, so they were just staying until all ungodly hours, working on stuff and figuring it out. I mean, the whole plexiglass screen that James Wood presses his face into. That's just experimentation how you get there. It was a dental dam, and he got the idea from knowing that they used the same material in King Kong. And that's how you get it, by creating an airtight seal that he's able to push his face into and do a rear projector. That's absolutely nuts. <laughs> I don't have the fucking patience to do anything anymore. Yeah. Well, and what's so crazy about it now, if you compare that to nowadays, is people are so fucking lazy with CGI. They're just like, ah, here you go. Yeah. Let's just do this. And you're just like, that, that looks fucking silly. Like, where is the originality? Where is the actual effort? Instead, I'm just fucking throwing lazy CGI at this. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, lazy CGI, you can always tell. 
yeah. good CGI, you can't. And that's one of the things that must be frustrating for those artists because it goes unnoticed. If you're, if you're, yeah, if you're great, if you're great at it, nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's crazy. Isn't I didn't funny? think about that. Yeah. If you're doing your job to the best of your ability, it's be, so it that goes nobody unnoticed. Will know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> think about a lot of like beauty makeups and stuff like that. Like V Neal, like she does a bunch of beauty makeups and it's just like, okay, well, this person's beautiful. Is Angelina that beautiful? <laughs> right. I mean, right. I'd probably sling her some sympathy sausage. But really, I think Vinny has a lot to do with stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, and then also you think about, I was listening to, I think, this is a little plug, The Wizard and uh, Bruiser. The Wizard and the Bruiser, and they're talking about the Lord of the Rings episode yep. and all the people that, that and all the effort that went into everybody's costumes. It's crazy. And there's like an entire wig department yep. that you're just like, I'm sorry, what? Because, I mean, my simple-minded brain, I'm just like, yep, no, that's how everybody's hair was. I they just styled <laughs> everybody's hair, and Gimli, he just, the actor, woke up, and his, he had this massive beard. No, every single day, they had to put on that makeup and put on that beard, and it's, like, astonishing, really, when you think about it. Yeah, and, I mean, how much all that costs. You know, it's, it's That's where the budget goes. Absolutely insane. <laughs> One of the things I really liked Rick Baker talking about was there's the scene where Woods first has his arm in the stomach. And as I was watching it, it was very disorienting. I thought it was purposeful, but he was fully honest to say that it wasn't. That There was a huge issue with, and I'm going to do my George Costanza's voice, shrinkage! Because if you look, the right arm that's going into the stomach, it's all fake. It's all tucked behind him. Right. But it is not only shriveled and thinner, but it is also shorter. Which I didn't. I mean, I thought. Yeah, I didn't. Purposeful. I didn't even realize that. I mean, I, I noticed it, but I thought it was a deliberate choice. And he was fully willing to say, like, "No, that was just a fuck up." But yeah. it, it looks cool, so that's kind of rad. He was definitely fisting himself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Frankie Boy was talking about the hardest part of doing the gun arm coming out of the TV was getting three hundred dollars from production to prepare the film that was being projected. Wow. Figuring out how to do it wasn't that expensive. Because it <laughs> it, it's projected on the front side. That, and then they just use different filters and different light settings to create a full, like, you know, matte finish on top of what is painted to be like skin. Crazy. Again, I mean, this movie is very masterful. It might not be enjoyable, but it's masterful. <laughs> you ready to get into nicknames? Nicknames. Dick names. Brick names. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> so we have James Woods as Max Maximus Wren. I like to call him Maximum Penetration. I went a little overboard there. I'm not going to lie. That's a lot of syllables because I was going to call him <laughs> Betamax. Yeah. Fun bit of trivia. That's probably a little better. The video cassettes that are put in his tum-tum are Betamax tapes because they are smaller. The Betamax, obviously the superior technology to the VHS, but for some <laughs> reason, just nobody liked it. Yeah, I had no idea about Betamax, actually, coincidentally, in, until I was watching The Mighty Boosh. And there, oh, yeah. was, a, there was a monster called Betamax who came out of nowhere and had all these the black tape come out and attack and wrap people up like a like a mummy. Nice. I thought it was great. Love so, it. I was like, what? That's a VHS. I don't know why they're calling it a Betamax. But yeah. For our younger that's viewers, this is Hades from Hercules. <laughs> he was talking about how he was sold on the movie because Cronenberg is just a totally like gentle and benign guy. Yeah. And basically was able to sell it on him that way. He's like, oh, this isn't that weird if this normal dude's doing it, which is crazy because now James Woods is crazy. <laughs> moving on is james woods crazy or is everybody else crazy and james woods is normal because he is like isn't he like super intelligent like crazy, his, yeah. like his iq Mensa is dude, like yeah. fucking super high yeah, okay 
Next, you have Debbie Harry as Nikki Brand. Could you have any nickname but Blondie? It's got to be Blondie. That's just which is funny because I'm so oblivious. I didn't know she was in the band Blondie, and I was like, she had red hair. I don't. Oh my god! Well, you're the dude who would fall for Clint Clark. You're the dude who would fall for Clark Kent being Superman. Yeah, but Superman doesn't wear glasses. Oh, Shut up, one. dick. Hey, I'm the one who stuttered <laughs> over Clark Kent, so I can't say two one-syllable names. Yeah, so Debbie Harry's definitely Blondie. Apparently, growing up, she said she wanted to be a movie star because, quote, rock groups did not really exist. It's nuts, right? Yeah, that's fucking nuts. Well, this is a woman who like wanted to be a performer her whole life and then found a way to do it. That's super rad. Yeah. Very Joan Jett, like yeah. oh, I making can her that. own way, Absolutely. kicking a door down and like hawking a loogie while grabbing her snatch. Uh, she purposefully took herself out of the perception of being like a ditzy pop star. Like you said, I think the the hair choice is very deliberate in this film. The mechanism of her speech, you notice she has a kind of an odd, deep, quivering tone yeah, to it. Yeah. Uh, if you listen to her talk, she doesn't actually talk like that. It's very purposeful. Next, you have Sonia Smith as Bianca Oblivion. I was going to call her the preacher's daughter. Totally makes sense. We're, we both Absolutely. like uh, Holly Holm. Yeah. I remember... Sitting next to you, white knuckled as Holly Holm kicked Ron DeRose's head off. And remember how for the hour before we're like an hour before, and we're like, we need to find a way to put money on this. Yep. And we <laughs> failed miserably. So hard. It was so fucking hard. Why was it so hard to like place an illegal bet on a UFC it's fight? The weirdest thing. I never heard of it. <laughs> yeah. So apparently she was on Street Legal, which is like a super long running TV show in Canada. Canada, yeah. That I want to say we covered a couple exactly. movies ago. Like it was a Canadian film. Was it My Bloody Valentine? My Bloody Valentine, yep. where a lot of the people were from Street Legal. Yep. It's yeah, like their cool. version of CSI, for Christ's sake. That's where it's like neat. everybody's done it at some point. Yeah. Then there's Peter Dvorsky as Harlan. I wanted to call him Patron, but then that's what he calls his boss. So I don't got it up for him. Who is Harlan again? He's the guy who's doing the tech stuff. Oh, oh, not Venkman. Oh, okay. Yeah, you can go with that. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's super cheesy because he has, he had glasses, right? No, he didn't even have glasses, I don't in think. some scenes he does, in some scenes he doesn't. Some, okay. It's the hair. Yeah. And I feel like, yeah, it's maybe it's the glasses, but yeah, I'm just going to call him not Venkman. Okay, I dig it. Then you had Leslie Carlson as Benny Convex. I was going to call him Captain Capitalism. <laughs> okay. I can see it. Perfect. Jack Creeley as Dr. Brian Oblivion. Do we have to give him a name? Not really, but I just wanted to make mention of the fact if you've seen the movie Network, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you don't, see the movie Network. Just do yourself a favor. I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take this anymore. That's what this character reminded me so much of. Oh, okay. There's the a bunch of, of other people that I really... We have to give credit where it's due. David Subochi. The Japanese pornographer really needs some acclaim for this movie because he <laughs> is the glue that holds it together. Oh, absolutely. I th- want to say I read some kind of trivia about this guy where he apparently wanted to be part of some sort of government, I- either in Japan or wherever he's from, and he was running for office, and they used this film as almost like a sp- like a, a smear campaign, a smear campaign. Exactly. Dude. They're like, how can you want this guy to be in Congress when he is supposedly a Japanese uh, porn- pornographer? Yeah, I was really surprised when Kane ran for or Glenn Jacobs ran yeah. for mayor that nobody was like, he was there in an angle where somebody was given an abortion with a steel chair. 
Is this the man we want as our mayor? <laughs> really, that didn't happen. Whoopsie. Oh, man. Brian, you want to give us the recapitation for this week? Oh, God. I will I will give it a shot. So. Something happens. <laughs> right, right. So you have you have Max, who is the president of a small-time channel who peddles smut, essentially. Yep. And he is getting bored with the everyday mundane, like, well, okay, we have this sleazy this or this sleazy that. We need to find something a little more cutting edge. And he he happens across a pirated channel called Video... God damn it, what's it called? Videodrome. Yes. I was like, brain fart. So he, he came across Videodrome, and apparently it came from Malaysia. No, wait, it came from Pittsburgh. Yep. And he becomes enamored with it, and after watching it, he goes into like a psychosis I guess you can say and craziness ensues I mean he has a vagina come out of his stomach or his chest he has a brain tumor he finds out that other people also have brain tumors after watching Videodrome and everybody dies when they are actually in it it's not an act Yep. and he goes on a crazy I guess conquest to take out capitalism (laughs) <laughs> works out so this lay by play it starts with this retro tv and you get my girl friday who's giving him a wake-up call on a vhs or a betamax tape maybe it's a vhs it's a tape and he sleeps through it well he wakes up he looks at japanese porn smears some pizza on the photo and then he's walking to the classic hotel you know classic in the background there's a guy who's like yelling at his wife to try and get in the room there's a baby crying. James Woods, I don't know if you noticed, he steals off of a housekeeper's cart. And <laughs> then he gets taken in and he meets with the Japanese pornographer, you know, the true unsung hero of the film. And he's tried to, like, he buys this film series, Samurai Dreams, which is basically smut. And he watches a scene where a woman removes a geisha costume from Dude, a carved it's so penis. It's so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous because <laughs> the, okay, the dildo looked like it was made of wood. Yes. Which maybe dildos were made of wood once I actually had a time. professor who actually wrote an entire thesis about uh, Victorian sex toys and like crank mechanisms and stuff with wood and Holy glass. Holy crap. Yeah. Okay, so I guess it is definitely uh, not, I wouldn't say authentic, but it's true to like, maybe <laughs> what they're aiming for. Yeah. So, And that was a thick, veiny one, man. Yeah, no, that had some girth to it. Yeah, especially, you know, you're like, oh, that's cool. She has some kind of a doll. And then she takes off the outfit and it's just like, wow. Tell you one thing, <laughs> I'm going to be looking at all the dolls my kid brings home. I'm going to be like, is this Barbie? Is this really? Yeah, it's like, you know, those little Russian dolls? Yeah, the nesting dolls. Yeah. <laughs> And then what's really weird is he says that there's, quote, something too soft about it. And he wants something that'll, quote, break through something tough. I'm like, you mean the giant wooden dick isn't enough to be severe? (laughs) I guess I'm just a wiener boy. So then it cuts to a satellite positioning on a roof. And all I could think of was the cable guy. And so that polluted my brain for a lot of movies. Giant satellite. Yeah, it's so good. We're playing Mortal Kombat with your friend in Vietnam, (laughs) which that movie totally predicted online gaming, which is weird AF. And so they think, like Brian said, they think they're descrambling the Malaysian signal. And what's really weird is the dude like instantly knows the idea that this woman is put up against electrified clay. Like that's a fucking thing that people talk about all the time. (laughs) But it makes sense when you find out, spoiler alert, he's the bad guy or part of the bad guys. 
And so then he's like, hey, I want you to track that because I want to get it on my channel. And as he's leaving, there's these weird like signs that he criticizes. And one of them says, quote, home of the buccaneer piracy on the high frequency. That was cute. Like a high scene, <laughs> high frequency. I like it. Next scene is them at the Arena King show. Which is so weird, right? Because it doesn't segue from... No segues like, to anything. Nothing. Yeah. It's just all of a sudden I'm on this TV show yeah. and uh, I'm a big name because apparently they're interviewing me, right? He's all, he, he went from this like small unknown, like we need to make it big to being on daytime television. Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh, okay, I guess this is happening now. <laughs> I mean, traditional story structure, you'd almost expect to be the reverse where you start the film with him on a TV show, yeah. but, but then you realize, oh, he's actually not this great. He's a smut peddler. Right, because, I mean, that's essentially your backstory. That's yeah. all you would need. But, hmm. you know, who am I to tell the great <laughs> David Cronenberg how to do his work <laughs> 40 years later? So it's really your introduction to Max Dren as a character, and he attributes it all to economics, which is a very sensible thing to do in a capitalist society. And he says that he's basically giving that people what they can't get anywhere else. And when he's questioned on the cultural impact that his work has, he says that it's a, quote, harmless outlet, which, I mean, this had a very Nancy Reagan vibe to the whole conversation. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Parental advisory note. And it was interesting. Right. I mean, when they created the parental advisory, they basically put a sticker on every CD that came out for the next 20 years that said, this is cool. Buy this. <laughs> Totally. I mean, backfired. yeah, it never stopped me from buying video games. That yeah, had that. rated M for mature. I was like, great, I'll take seven of them. Please. It's got blood in it. All right. Is it E for everyone? Let's just turn that on its side and make it look like an M, and I'll buy it. But this is where he meets Debbie Harry Blondie, the whatever chick. More you like redhead. I don't know what she's talking about. Redheady. Oh, that sounds perverse. I don't like it. But well, you, it fits with the film. There you go. Oh God. <laughs> intermeddling of body fluids but you find out that she's basically your dr ruth and she gets sweaty when she's in the radio booth which made me a little uncomfortable i was like what the fuck are you doing right but and it's so interesting how it kind of gives her a little bit of a backstory as far as what she kind of portrays herself yeah on the radio when she's completely somebody else exactly when the cameras aren't on she's just a chick i think that's kind of cool yeah but she's also somebody that's very much opposite of how she's trying to oh yeah. almost help these women mental like, health and yeah exactly and she's like cut me again put <laughs> <the> face <laughs> so he makes a just kind of a weird freudian joke about her red dress and then asks her for a date that was so weird <laughs> I, I thought it was interesting i mean was, you know i could see the braggadaciousness of it being kind of you know appealing and while they're doing this, you have Dr. Oblivion or Professor Oblivion or the Reverend or whatever on the film. And what's interesting is I thought that his response to the situation was disjointed, yeah. which comes into play later because you find out the dude's been dead for 11 months and it's just footage that his daughter is just sending out, which I think is a very interesting way of kind of, you know, for all, like we have to confront with deep fakes. And I'm not even trying to be silly. Like this is something I think about in my legal profession all the time. The creation of fake evidence and like the perpetuation yeah. of like, the great and powerful Oz. It's totally possible you could create a fake character yep. that would exist that way. And honestly, if you're Disney, right, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you have a fake construct that any actor could step into rather than have the risk of your actor dying? Yeah, well, well I mean, we were just company? talking about this the other day about the guy that uh, played the pig in Toy Story, was it? Or somebody somebody died in uh, one of their Pixar films, and instead of getting rid of the character, they just clipped together all of his, like, 
work yep. from the past and they just had him continue on being a character they used his voice it is the actor yeah. Look at Carrie he's Fisher. just dead the scene where it, she talks about like the droid having never underestimating a droid that's from the force awakens that was a deleted scene it's still on the fucking dvd <laughs> it's crazy yeah yeah did you happen to see within this part of the movie when they wheeled him out or it showed him as a talking head in the screen, it reminded me of Futurama. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not a crook. I love it. So then he goes back to Harlan, who's not Egon or whatever we call them. And basically, he's talking about how there's no plot and how there's no production costs. And this is where you find out that it's coming from Pittsburgh and not Malaysia, which is interesting because the way this is presented, especially when you know he's the bad guy, you almost wonder if he's been using the same thing as a fishing expedition and showing it to multiple people, and it's just James Woods who bit. Oh, that's interesting. And then that's why he goes, oh, it's actually not Malaysia. It's in Pittsburgh. Yeah, it's you're attainable. showing a little bit more interest than the others, so I'm going to give you a little bit more information to lead you on a little more. Mm-hmm. And then we cut to the, quote, emotional rescue show, which is set in at Toronto. And this is where you get Blondie being like, you need mental help. And then it cuts right to a scene where she's watching torture porn and asking him to cut her. So, I mean, you know, (laughs) it's cool. Totally makes sense. Yeah. So I think it's really great how they're just like hanging out at the house and she's just walking around. She's like, you got any porno? Do you have any pornography? And you're like, first of all, I feel like people say porn. Yeah. But like, I don't know. I. There's no like getting saucy or like having a glass of wine or anything beforehand. She's just like, "Ah, you got any porn? You got any pornography? Let's let's go for it. Would you happen to have any pornography in your domicile (laughs) with which I could view on perhaps your Betamax Uh, cassette tape player? It's so good. And so she says, quote, I like it. Yeah, it turns me on. Said no woman ever clearly written by a man i'm gonna go on the subreddit uh, men writing women i'm like ever seen that it's one of my favorite subreddits ever because like 90 percent of it's stephen king and it's like her nipples did blah and it's like what the fuck does that do with stephen oh man i feel like we talked about him (laughs) we did a whole year of movies for him Sit down, Steven. <laughs> but please tell me about the color of her panties. Yeah, right. Because we care. <laughs> Jesus. So then she's like, quote, want to try a few things, end quote. And so they're naked and spooning, bathed in the red light of the TV, and he pierces both of her ears. And then you see Blondie's nipples. And I was like, what? <laughs> this is a part of the movie where in every part of a movie, when I'm watching a naked guy and I'm like, okay, Aroused? they <laughs> are they are they are way too hairless. Yeah. Okay. Like I always picture myself in the film because that's just what I do. And I'm like, I would be some hairy fucking dude, like, and nobody wants to see that. Yeah. I don't know. Your body hair bathed in red light would not look very good. <laughs> I'm like, maybe I'm just a weirdo. No, just every guy basically goes and gets fucking waxed from head to toe. I wasn't sure which body was hers and which was James Woods because basically he's just like a glistening hairless body, yeah. right? From far away. So he's who a the lot fuck more knows? Like- curvy than she is weird musculature and stuff i all i'm saying is i wish they had actual guys that 
yeah. have hairy bodies. All I'm saying films. is that I think that David Cronenberg <laughs> has a type because if you look at James Woods' body and you look at Jeff Goldblum's, I'm like, I see it. No, you know what? That's totally true. They're yeah. very similar. And they're very similar in skin tone, too. Yeah. I mean, they're, and their mannerisms are pretty similar in a lot of ways. And so they pan out from there having the sexy time and they're on the shiny black plastic floor of the torture room, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, I was wondering what was going on there. I didn't really get that they were in the torture room. I just almost just thought it was a hallucination and I didn't think there was any significance, but apparently so. That's one of the great things is because from the very get-go, you don't know what's going on and what's to be taken seriously and what is from the very beginning, is this something weird? And he has a fucking sweet ass needle, jabs it through her ear. A long needle. And then he licks it. Uh, he sucks on her earlobe. Mm. Nope. <laughs> That's how you get all kinds of fun stuff. Yep. So he, the next morning he gets to work and he's late for a meeting. And then what I think is cute is that you know his assistant has the coffee and the cigarette already started. Isn't that cute? She's like, please die faster so I can get a new <laughs> boss. And he grabs a girl's ass on the way to the office, which, again, as I'm going through and reading American Psycho, I was like, wow, this overlaps in a crazy amount of ways. So he's watching topless women in Grecian garb, and then he's talking to this woman about Dionysus. Masha. Yeah, Masha. Masha, (laughs) Masha, Masha. She was an interesting character, right? Because she comes off as almost just like this sweet, innocent lady. Maternal, right? Yeah. Right? And then she's just so dark. She reminds me of the lady from The Wedding Singer. The hip hop. The hippie tip. Oh, there you go. She's like, oh, you have, you got layers. Oh, she reminds me of the lady from Ready to Rumble when she's like, kick his scrawny ass. (laughs) Who gets her septic tank pulled out. There you go. God, it's weird to think that David Arquette, you know, in character, sniffed that woman's poop out of a (laughs) tube. But uh, (laughs) I love that he questions Masha and he goes, quote, does it ever get good? That's going to be my new thing. Gonna be like if a, somebody's giving you a pitch, you're just gonna be like looking bored. Does it ever get good? We're gonna be at a restaurant having food, and they're gonna be like, "How is it?" Like, well, does it ever get good? <laughs> like, oh. Then they're gonna offer you dessert yeah. with spit. Yeah, right. Oh. <laughs> That's not vegan, so I can't have it. That's why I'm always ridiculously polite to my wait staff, even when my food sucks. So he calls it quote too naive, too sweet. It's, it's titties, and it's not good enough for him. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely not nipples getting chewed off like Castle Freak. And so he's talking to her about Videodrome, and she's like, then God help us if this is what he actually wants. And so basically, you know, they're going to have lunch, and he's going to see if she can track it down for him. Then it cuts to the poist. Then it cuts to the poist coital <laughs> intimacy between Blandy and Betamax. And she says that she's going away for two weeks on an assignment. She ain't. She's going to sling that vagina over to the video drone people because she's obsessed with it now. What's interesting is you never get to see her hallucinations, but it seems kind of implied that she's got something going on. Right, right. And, you know, you find this out afterwards that, you know, as soon as you become subject to video drone, you almost become a slave to it. Yeah. And it's, and it's physiological. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. Right, yeah. right. So it's it's kind of neat to look back at that and say, okay, well, it totally makes sense for her to just randomly be like, well, I'll see you later for two weeks. This is what's going on. Because looking at it from the first fresh pair of eyes, you're just like, wait, we just got introduced to you. Why the fuck are you not in the film anymore? Exactly. And one of the things that you have Captain Capitalism talking about later is the susceptibility that people have because of their infatuation with violence. 
you know, the more that you see, the easier it is for the signal to penetrate you. And she introduces Max to a certain type of sadism and masochism he's not familiar with. So she clearly is more well-versed in violence. So she succumbs more quickly. I mean, and this is so crazy because it's probably super clearly thrown out in front of me. But this is me just being oblivious to it until now. But how people basically tune into a lot of shit just for violence even though it's not specifically a violent sport, just for the fact that it potentially could be violent. Only time I've ever watched NASCAR, every time I'm like, please blow up, please blow up, please blow up. Dude, the Daytona 500 just happened where the final lap, the guy got into this like catastrophic fucking accident. Oh, and that's like a and good I reason. missed it? A good reason why these people, you know, why people watch it. Yeah. That is it. It's like, do you want to watch a train wreck? That is literally a saying that people say. Do you want to watch this train wreck? Yeah. Like hideous car wreck is what I If would say. if you don't <laughs> in real life, when you see a train wreck, you're like, nah, I'm good. Like, but like people use that as something like, okay, yeah, you know what? You don't want to miss this. Check out this train wreck. So it's kind of neat to kind of put that in similarities with what he's talking about within this film. For sure. And this is where she says that it, quote, sounds like a challenge when he's like, don't do it. And then she puts out a cigarette on her titty. And then that's the next scene where it's him having lunch with the old lady, Masha. And the only way he's able to get her to give him a name is by buying her stupid Dionysus tapes. <laughs> I like that she gets a little something out of it. And yeah. it's not just Betamax just fucking bullying his way. And she tells him, point blank, this is real. This is not this is not yeah, a fictional maybe thing. you need to take a step away from this and he still doubles down he offers to shower to, with take her a shower and, with her yeah and then she he's golden she's, shower hmm well, i like that she says that he's too old for her i was like oh let's swip the tables <laughs> huh? and then immediately after that there's supposed young waiting staff that like you're like dude you look just as old as yeah, fucking right. Betamax, if not older so then she gives the name that it's Dr. Oblivion or Professor Oblivion, and that's who's making it. So then he shows up at the cathode ray mission. And my favorite little detail I noticed in this, so he's smoking a cigarette, and he throws a cigarette out as he's going into the mission. And a hobo looks over at it and tracks it down. <laughs> I was like, I've seen that guy. The guy who's like, that's a half-smoked cigarette. There's still half of a cigarette to smoke. Oh, man. That's how herpes get spread. Yep, yep. <laughs> This part feels the most like, what is it? What's that stupid show that I hate? Makes me feel uncomfortable on Dr. Oz. Nah, uh, Black Mirror. <laughs> it's like Black Mirror. Okay. Because it's like, oh, you got, uh, this is the food for the the brain, right? You need to watch X amount of hours of TV and this is how you're going to sate your urges and your crazy compulsions and whatnot. And it's just really uncomfortable. You see one homeless guy in like this little cubicle who's watching surgical footage and he looks at him kind of leering. And then James Woods makes his way, or Betamax makes his way to speak to the preacher's daughter. I, I'm sorry, I just burped like four times in my mouth and it got worse tasting every time. <laughs> so they w- wax philosophical about plugging hobos into like the mixing board of the ether. I didn't really follow that part. And then he mentions Videodrome to her and then he leaves when he can't speak to the pr- professor directly. And he thinks he's being strung along. She, uh, you find out later, she thinks that he's going to kill her at this point, And that's one of the reasons why. Is this where he, he also finds out that the prof- professor's been dead? He finds that out later. Oh, yeah. He, he okay. returns to the same soup kitchen thing, and that's what you get. So then it cuts to him doing the video drum at home. Then you hear the voiceover, the dialogue from earlier. And he pulls out his gun, and there's a knock. So he hides the gun under his newspaper, 
And this is what you were talking about earlier. When My Girl Friday comes in and she's super sweet and she's like, here's your tape, blah, blah, blah. And he has the view that he hits her and she turns Dude. into Blondie and then turns back and he's like, I'm so sorry I did that. And she's like, I didn't, didn't realize that she turned into Blondie. Oh, it's wow. a flash image, yeah. That's crazy. It's dark. She's wearing that sexy red dress from the Rena King show. It's not How sexy. How did I not see that? Dress, That's fucking nuts. Anyways, maybe it was just me being completely shocked that he just fucking smacked her for no reason. And I was just like, ooh, this got real right now. Even though, like, fuck, we're like 45 minutes into the film and you already know shit's real. Uh, oh, yeah. For some reason, this scene in particular just was so aggressive, right? And it yeah. was like... It's completely uncalled for. And it just like everything before that, you were like, okay, I am being led into this is going to be a crazy scene. Yeah. Consensual. Right? He still thinks that the films are fake. That kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. And, is, and then this is just, she just shows up and he, then he strikes her. And he's an abuser. Yeah. What? <laughs> but then you instantly forgive him when he's not an abuser. And you're like, oh, he's just crazy. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's just crazy. Exactly. Like your we were point. talking about before. It's yeah. like, oh, no, he's hallucinating. So it's fine that I just saw him strike her. And then he rushes her out and she's like, oh, I got a tape from Dr. Oblivion. And he goes, oh, and he grabs it. And then the tape starts to pulse, which is really great effect. It's, it's cheesy, but it's fun. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it kind of reminds me of almost like a dog chew toy. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I've seen enough of those in my life. And so as the film starts, it's got enough like generic dialogue, but then it gets very specific and even says him by name, which is interesting that it says him by name. If the guy died 11 months ago, unless they were planning this for months, it's kind of a, that's one of the inconsistencies. Yeah. But he's already having hallucinations by this point. So who so, knows? He yeah. could be hallucinating the fact that he's calling him by name. So then the professor talks about the brain tumor, which is the, quote, uncontrollable flesh. And when they removed the tumor, he, it was Videodrome. And he says that he was its first victim. And then. This is where Blondie reveals herself and says that she wants him. Then the entire TV starts to pulse as she moans. That's then fucking the crazy. Start to pulse. It's super crazy. And then as the screen bulges out, he buries his face into its lovely squishiness that reminded me of Baymax from Big Hero 6. I'm like, this is weird. <laughs> Why does my brain do this where I think of everything that's even tenuously related? So then he goes back to the mission and he meets with the daughter and he's like, um, What? And she's like, oh, yeah. Have you been hallucinating? He's like, oh, yeah, kind of. Maybe. What about it? And she goes, since when? Since last night? And he goes, oh, since the first time I saw Videodrome. And so then she tells him about the tumor. And she's like, no, yeah, it's not just a video. It's real. And he's like, you gave me a fucking tumor? And she's like, well, yeah, I thought you were going to come kill me, bitch. I love that. Where it's like, oh, I guess honor amongst themes. He thought I was going to kill you. So you decided to kill me with my brain. I don't know. Yeah, then they kind of go into detail about how he's been dead for a while and he's made sometimes two or three episodes a day. And she, what, how many hours? Like fucking thousands and thousands of hours worth of worth of film. So, I don't know. It's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. There's one great quote where she talks about public life on television was more real than private life in the flesh. And it reminded me of Oingo mm, Boingo's song. In the flesh. In the flesh. Yeah, because the Oingo Boingo song Private Life came out on Nothing to Fear in July of 82. So it might have been in the subconscious of people because it is a catchy as fuck song. <laughs> she gives him a, a stack of tapes from her father. And then he was like, I have to return some videotapes. Oh, <laughs> man. We'll get to that next week. <laughs> then it cuts to him at the studio and he asks Harlan if he's been hallucinating. He's like, nah, dog. I wonder why. Hmm. Then it's him watching the videotapes, and he starts to notice this linear rash on his tummy, and he's yeah, scratching, he's at scratching it, with a gun. it, scratching mm. it. And so then the professor talks about the tumor as a new organ, which will develop a 
quote, change in human reality. And if he has more doses of Videodrome and he starts to scratch the rash with the gun, it becomes a giant vagina. He puts the gun inside. Okay, so that was clearly a vagina, right? Yeah, no, it's... It has to be. It has to be. There's no other explanation. I mean, it would be one thing if there was some sort of teeth and you can be like, okay, so it's like a weird mouth. Yeah. This is not Sheetar's mouth stomach. No. No, this is is like there are... The vulva, yes. There are things that you need to unfold to, you know... What I was really hoping for is that somebody would punch him in the stomach and he's like, oh, my clitoris. (laughs) So he loses the gun. He loses the gun. City slicker style. fucking gone. Like when he loses his watch, hello. (laughs) That's what I said out loud when I was watching this on my tablet. My wife looked over at me and I was like, just don't. You don't want (laughs) to know. You don't want to know. You don't want to know. I liked how disjointed the music was here, but then it cuts to him at the phone and there's a car waiting for him about Videodrome. So he gets in the limousine. And he goes to Captain Capitalism, who's recorded him a fancy message all his own. <laughs> so he, he meets Barry Convex and he starts talking about the hallucinations and they want to take him to the base for analysis. And then they give him this really cool head appendage that looks like a testicle and it's glowing and it's recording his hallucinations, which is a fun idea. Did you know that James Woods was afraid to put that on because he was going to get electrocuted? So, so Cronenberg. Cronenberg put it on. Dude, that's a so that, fucking cool. That's a fucking ship's that's captain right there. Dedication right, right? there. Right? He's like, uh, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. <laughs> yeah. It seemed like some crazy, almost, you know, those speedwalker helmets. Oh, yeah, dude. Right? Like uh, Malcolm in the Middle back in the day when, that. <laughs> when Hal had it. Well, yeah, it's fucking great. Crazy to think he went on to Breaking Bad. And to be Zordon. What the fuck? Weird world we live in. And so Convex leaves and he's like, I just can't ha- cope with the freaky stuff. You give people tumors on purpose. <laughs> he starts having the hallucinations. Blondie appears. She gives him a whip. And then they go to the red room. And then she's on the TV. And at first, he's reluctant to whip the TV, and then he starts to get into it. And then he loves it. Yeah. (laughs) And then it becomes the old woman, Masha, who's getting whipped. Which is so fucking weird. I was like, you monster. (laughs) She's a perverted grandmother, for Christ's sake. Yeah. Meanwhile, she's probably all about that shit. Yeah. Don't judge a book. (laughs) So then he wakes up at home, and it's just static on the TV. And so he rolls over in bed, and it's the same old lady, bound, gagged, and dead. And he's like, what? So he calls Harlan, whoever, not Ivan Venkman, whatever we call them. And he comes over and he's like, do you want me to take pictures of your bed? Yeah. <laughs> and there's nothing there. And he's like, oh, I didn't like this. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it for context, I guess it, it kind of explains certain things, but... It was like, it was simultaneously too dreamy and not dreamy enough for me to take it seriously. Yeah, okay, I could see that. So then they meet at the lab in an hour, and he's like, oh, come on, you need to meet me in the lab. Then James asks if he watched the film, and he says, quote, not last night, not ever. And then he brings in Captain Capitalism, who's like, ta-da, <laughs> you've been duped, fuck ass. <laughs> so apparently it was recordings that they watched, not the actual live video of it, right? Exactly. It's all been a con from the very beginning. Uh, and so they give him loophole. a brain tumor, quote, to get you involved, expose you to the video drum signal. So, I mean, they, they picked and choose him. This was a, a deliberate attack. So then they talk about they plan to hijack his channel and put the video drum signal out mm. for everybody. So this is where he gets sent on his little secret soldier missions. Yeah. And then they take the tape and they put it in the stomach. Dude, fucking crazy. Yeah, it's not cool. And so then he is sent to kill his cohorts at the studio with his 
fused gun hand where his nails have like pierced through his hand out the back. That's probably one of my favorite parts of this movie. Yeah, that's probably my favorite effect by a long margin. And then it, it that specific version of it, when it starts to turn into like one big organ, it's not as cool to me. Yeah, no, I like the the mechanical look to it, boring into his like veins. Yeah, it's really fucking cool. Oh, it's exciting, not boring. Mm. <laughs> Sorry. So he goes and he shoots his homies. Like, what's up? And so he acts like he's been shot. So Friday is like, oh, I'll help you. And he's like, actually, I'm not shot. I'm leaving because I killed those guys. And she's like, what? (laughs) And he just escapes. I didn't notice this, but apparently I looked at one of the goofs is that when he shoots the first guy and he gets hit in the arm, you can clearly see the blood pack. Oh, love it. Ah, So I was like, I mean, but it looked fucking cool. I wasn't paying attention to that. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's cool. He killed killed these guys. How's he going to get away with that? No, he just walks out. Get a little like Requiem for a Dream, natural born killers where it's like it's real and it's not real at the same time. I could dig that. So then he goes on the other mission and he goes to Corvex's preacher's daughter and he's like, hi, I'm Max Wren. And she's like, you've already given me this introduction. So it was you after all. You've come to kill me. You're an assassin now for Videodrome. This is the dialogue from like a comic from the Yeah, 50s. no kidding, right? Ooh. I just imagine like the background. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. <laughs> Love it. So then he has the one shiny meatball gun and uh, he's going to shoot her and pursues her through the cubicles. And he finds a TV where Blondie was killed on Videodrome and quote, they used her image to seduce you, but you were already dead. Okay. Super deep. He's clearly alive and he was about to shoot you in the (laughs) fucking face, so you're wrong. So then the gun hand pushes through the TV static and then it shoots him in his bleeding torso and he removes the tape. You have become the video word made flesh, which is like, you know, I guess the weird kind of dogma of these people, but that's not explained well. So it just comes across as nonsense. But the fact that it's nonsensical makes sense in the sense that it doesn't make sense. If you catch what I'm saying? (laughs) It's a weird cult thing. That's all I can say. And then she says, long live the new flesh. Long live the new flesh. All right, let's do it. That makes total sense. So he follows Harlan, the guy, back to the optometrist's office and he takes a new tape. But then the stomach pussy rips the skin off of his hand and that's he has really weird, cool. Like, club it's thing. like a weird, yeah. I mean, I pff, it's towards the end of the film. You're like, okay, I'm not gonna do like a sweet like skeletal hand covered yeah. in blood. So I'm just gonna mold some clay into like a stump and covered in blood. It reminded Let's me of the sculptures day. in Beetlejuice. It was just yeah, weird. Like blah. I could see that. I can see that. And I didn't make this reference in the fly, but I have to make it now. When the creature gets teleported, he's like, but the creature is inside out. And then it exploded because this dude just <laughs> blows up and then Ren just walks out the hole in the wall. Dude, the explosion was so bad, too. <sighs> right. I mean, throw a little guts or something like out there to make it kind of gruesome. But it literally just almost was like a magic trick where I feel like there should have been like. A, a cloud of smoke and Ta-da. then like a fucking dove like flew off or something. <laughs> and some guy named Presto shows up and like, for my next illusion. <laughs> it was really I'm going to saw your stomach put in half. And he's like, don't touch me. <laughs> Unless you're going to punch me in my clitoris. Wow. Ooh. Then you have Betamax going to the trade show and he grows gun hand and he sh- 
chases Captain Capitalism on the stage, and then I like how everybody's just staring at them. Like, this is fine, right? This is th- yeah. is this part of the act? Exactly. I couldn't tell if they were like not <laughs> sure if it was part of the act or if the idea was supposed to be they were so desensitized. But when he starts to explode and tumors start shooting out of him, then people leave. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that might be a okay. good reason to leave. I don't know. Yeah, pretty solid. I'm also thinking maybe I'm infected and that's going to happen to me because none of this makes any sense. Yeah, dude. That's the, <laughs> clearly the slay of the game for me. That one, that effect is so gross. I oh, it. dude, it, it like never ended. It was amazing. Yeah. It reminded me of the innovation of scanners, but like way more fleshed out. I wish what happened here happened in Indiana Jones and uh, in whatever one where they uncover the the fucking the Nazis get their faces melted. Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine if all of that happened to them? I would love that. Dude, how Nothing fucking cool would, make would me that be? Than right? a bunch of Nazis with tumors. <laughs> all I could think about is Jojo Rabbit saying, fuck off, Hitler. <laughs> Still haven't seen it. You need to. I'm telling you now, it's the best movie of all time. Not of all time, of 2019. So then he goes to the shipyards and then Blondie's in the fleshy TV. I was hoping you'd be back. And she says that he needs to take the next phase to fight them. Quote, you have to go all the way now. A total transformation. Wait, are they talking about butt stuff? Mm-hmm. <laughs> flicky, flicky, the prostate from within the colon. <laughs> Quote, to become the new flesh, you first have to kill the old flesh. And I was like, oh, well, know sh- what's happening then. Yep. So he watches himself commit suicide on the screen. And so I'm like, well, naturally, he's not going to do that. And then he commits suicide the way he did on the screen. I was like, oh, okay. That's the end of the movie. Credits roll. I was kind of hoping that it would be something like uh, the Partridge family or something like quaintly polite. Oh, right. For the ending music. (laughs) So there were three endings filmed. There's the one where he shoots himself on the ship. And then one of them had an epilogue after the suicide, which sounds stupid. And this is where the mutated sex organs emerge, and it is not fun. The original vision for the ending was, after the suicide, Max ends up on the Videodrome set with Nikki, hugging and kissing and neat stuff like that. A happy ending? Well, it's my version of a happy ending. Boy meets girl on the Videodrome set with the clay wall maybe covered in blood, but I'm not sure. Freudian rebirth imagery, pure and simple. (laughs) What? What? <laughs> oh, dude. I have no idea. I feel like psychedelic drugs. <laughs> I, don't know, man. I don't know, man. This is a movie. Like I said, I didn't like it, but I'm glad I saw it. Yeah. It's, you, this is going to be weird. I'm putting it in the classic tragedy. I was thinking the same thing. Okay. So the, I feel like maybe I'm almost a homer for like agreeing with a lot of the shit that you say or like I'll be like oh well you know what I kind of feel like this and then you'll give your input and then I'm like hey you know what you make a lot of sense so I'm going to change it to this I was debating on putting it in trashic or classic it's not tragic it's definitely not tragic because it holds its own yeah and there's nothing like it there's artistry there exactly so that's why i completely throw it out of the idea of being in a tragic uh category but when it comes to trashic you're almost just glossing over everything that was poured into the film and what's weird is how fucking timeless this movie feels this feels super topical Another thing that's crazy is how many films have we covered where we put them into classic category where we can honestly say, ah, one and done. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I think Not this many. is the only one I can yeah. say where 
it's in the top rank as far as a classic, maybe not the top of classic, but yeah, it's within sure. the upper ranks of our, our scoring system. But no, I absolutely don't need to see this. And in fact, I feel like there are some people within my life that I will probably never show this to. Yeah, we talked about it. This is definitely a movie where you show it to someone to watch their reaction, not to watch the movie. Yes, but it also, knowing how the film is, you have to know your audience. Yeah, dude. Right? Because you can't take somebody who loves watching fucking... Little House on the Prairie. Little House on the Prairie or fucking Charlie's Angels and being (laughs) like... Full throttle. Yeah, you know what I mean? And thinking like... Hey, check this out. Let me know what you think. Unless you totally want to fuck with him, which is, t- I mean, which is fine. You, you like never been kissed with Drew Barrymore? <laughs> Watch this film. Yeah. I mean, just the fact that, you know, majority of the people that you probably talk to that you say, hey, you want to check a movie? It's called Videodrome. They're like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> yeah. I kind of expected it to have like a weird, like, Thunderdome kind of like battle to it. Nah, it does not happen. Mm hmm. It's true. Yeah. You definitely don't get anything from the name. Yeah. Actually, all. I saw promotional material that said that the future will be battled in the video drum. That doesn't what? happen. Yep. <laughs> but I guess the argument is that the new flesh is combating the video drum within, but I don't think that, that works. Yeah. But at the same time, you don't know what the new flesh is until 75% of the movie's <laughs> over. Yeah. I get you. And then I, I read online where people didn't get that the new flesh is the tumor, that is the flesh that is new. So, I don't know if I have to explain that to our audience, but just so you know, I thought that was weird when I stumbled on it when I was doing my research. I was like, uh, pretty beats you over the head with it, brother. Like he's yeah. talking about flesh that is new that becomes an organ. Do you know how tissue works? But anyway, it doesn't beat the fly, but it's definitely a classic. It's definitely a classic. I highly Absolutely. recommend watching. I know that some of our listeners will listen to our episodes and take all the spoilers and enjoy them. And yeah, I want to say this them. one was recommended to us by a few people as yeah. well. So. We do polls. So if you're a Patreon patron, we always listen to what you say. We have the slasher submission form where we take everything that people say and we try and incorporate it. We have the next few months planned out in terms of themes. So really the best way to get us to do one, if you want like a one-to-one, one of our Patreon things, it, it's the highest tier that we have. You could literally buy an episode where we will do an episode based on what you want and we'll release it as a Patreon bonus, which obviously you would get for free and you could choose to distribute on your own. So basically yeah, it's a sponsored so episode. Cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Nobody's ever taken us up on it because we're not worth it. But, you know, it's, it's an idea. <laughs> it's a novel idea. Isn't it, though? So we have Patreon, like I said. We have all the bullshit, the Instagram, Facebook, Twitter page. We're super close to 4,000 followers on Instagram, which would be super cool to break by the end of the month. We're super close to 5,000 on Facebook, which would be super cool to break at the end of the month. And uh, Twitter is useless. I think I have like five <laughs> followers, so fuck them. But, yeah, anything you want to say before we go for the week? No, I think we're good, man. I uh, maybe do a little bit of your uh, homework. We're going to be doing American Psycho next week, so yeah. So feel free to read the book. It's not great. I will tell you. <laughs> I was telling Brian, like I'm enamored with it, but I kind of hate it, but I kind of love it at the same time. I'll listen to it at one point two speed. Yeah, I'll, do, I'll do one point two. I mean, <laughs> I'm listening to it at one point seven. I don't like listening enough. to little high pitched clown voices talk about murdering people, so maybe a little slower than that. Yeah, the, it's the novel by Brett Easton Ellis. If you're looking for it, so you can find it in a lot of places. Uh, you can't find it on the scribed account that I use. Fucking fabulous. The book came out in 1991, so it was already a throwback. So there you go. For the rest of the month, we also have Shutter Island, Clockwork Orange. In the Mouth of Madness, and the Patreon bonus episode will, of course, be one-hour photo with Robin Oh, Williams. there you go. 
I didn't I didn't catch that. That's oh, great. I'm so Absolutely. excited for it. I love that fucking movie. Yep. Cool. So it looks like it's that time of the week again, Brian. You want to say goodbye to these goons? Yeah, yeah. If you ain't watching them dying, you ain't really trying. For Brian and myself, my name is Jake, telling you to go out there and do something you love. And remember that all work and no power play makes Jack a dull boy. That was a crazy fun episode, wasn't it? I am tired. My brain is sore from having to process all of the imagery and subtext and trivia that we went through in that episode. So I'm going to relax and unwind with Time Snake. Basically, if you Google Time Snake, which is one word, this is the song Sky Dead off of the EP The Florida Man EP, which is fun because the cover of the EP has a bunch of toy alligators on it because that's all I believe exists in Florida and you can't prove otherwise.